Thursday, I believe it was, I was invited to uh, go to this event uh, for youth. Um, it's kind of an underground thing that's not widely publicized. Uh, the audience is atheist and agnostic youth, and they're having a series of speakers come in and uh, talk about different aspects of the faith with that audience in mind. And I was asked to come in and talk about uh, my own uh, sort of, the, the title which I didn't give was My Life as an Atheist, My Life as a Christian, because I, I was once an atheist. I once was where these uh, kids were. Um, and I've talked about that here, so I don't want to really get into the minutiae too much because you've heard my story a couple of times. But the thing about it, though, that because it's on my mind from earlier this week, is the, the, the process of coming to faith for me was, was quite long. I mean, it really was a long process as I meditate on it of 26 years. It took 26 years for me to come to faith. Most acutely, uh, at least 12 of those years, I can think, from the age of 14 to 26, I can pinpoint the moment where my life shifted and I didn't immediately come to faith, but it was like... Uh, uh, God was coaxing me in a certain direction. And there were points of pain and points of mercy uh, along the way that I didn't quite recognize at the moment what was happening, but in retrospect have some sense of clarity of different people and how they reacted to different events in my life and things that felt like the uh, the rug being pulled out from underneath of me. Now look back and think, well, those were acts of mercy where God was at work in my life and uh, propelling me in a certain direction. I often talk about my career shift during that process of going from being an English teacher to eventually becoming a minister, and I look at it as not really a career change. I mean, it was like it was like one seamlessly moved into the other. It wasn't an abrupt shift per se, and God was at work even in the the first career, you know, in my 20s <laughs> um, as an English teacher uh, to, to move me in the direction that I might uh, become a preacher, I think. And uh, even uh, finally dropping me to my knees and crying out, Ahaba, have mercy. Uh, and God often uh, works this, w- this way. Uh, you might have this in your life. Maybe not. Maybe there are people you know, but you could just look at the Bible. I mean, think about Joseph, Joseph of Genesis, uh, the process of his childhood to eventually in adolescence, his brothers putting him down in the pit and him being carried off into Egypt and uh, being involved with the Egyptian government and uh, what he was able to do for the the sake of the nation of Israel, this this long process that might have initially really begun with that moment where his brothers put him in the pit, or even before that, uh, the times when uh, he was coming to them, telling him, telling them his dreams. Um, or think about Samuel, when God had to come to him and call to him three times, and he didn't recognize him until finally someone else pointed out what was going on. Or Moses, uh, God perhaps at work in his life when he had to run away, escape from Egypt and spend time in the desert and finally speak to him through a burning bush. And it wasn't over then. God was still coaxing him in new directions when he said, you're going to be my prophet. And he said, you've got the wrong guy. You've obviously got the wrong guy. And God said, no, it's you. Or think of David, who was a, a man after God's heart, uh, and yet, and yet, was the same man who would have an affair with a woman and then kill that man's husband and then be convicted of his sin so much that he might write a song like Psalm 
51. And finally, and finally, when you read that psalm, you see a conviction of heart, of, of genuine repentance and faith. Or just think of Peter, who is in the presence of the very presence of Jesus Christ and all the silly things that he did that when you read it, though, I mean, wouldn't you, you know, ask the same sort of questions or, um, you know, say, well, you won't wash my feet and things like that. And, um, uh, well, I won't deny you, Lord. And then uh, he does with the cock crow crowing three times. God's still at work in his life, truly becoming an apostle, the one who at Pentecost would preach a sermon uh, not too long later that would convert so many people uh, to the faith. Uh, well, Paul's conversion was actually like this, too. I mean, you often Paul is the sort of quintessential story that we think about where it was like, you know, conversion, bam, off the horse, uh, shining light. Well, there's a line in uh, the chapter in Acts that we have here is Acts chapter nine in the King James Version. Uh, it says it's not in this version, in the English Standard Version, other modern versions. It has this line, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Oh, in the English Standard Version, this is actually in chapter 26 when Paul recounts for the second time in Acts uh, the story of, of this experience, this conversion experience, where Paul says Jesus told him it is hard for you to kick against the goads, the goading or the pricks. Well, in the King James Version, it was probably just a, uh, they probably transposed it from uh, chapter 26 into this place because it's ba- basically verbatim otherwise, the same quote for Jesus, but it wasn't in the Greek in that place. But the, the line that's missing here that was in King James Version in this passage was, it's hard, he, Jesus says to Paul after he knocks him off the horse, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks or in the English Standard Version, the goads. Well, what does he mean by that? He means that you've been kicking against the goading for so long, Paul. You've, you've, you've been working against me. Why do you persecute me? I've been at work in your life and you don't even know it. Uh, here you are as probably in his uh, 30s or so. And he's saying, I've, been at, I've, I've known you since you were in the womb. You know, and you've been kicking against my pricks all along. Um, and what... And, and how might this look? And by the way, a goad, you know, goading is like when somebody takes like a, a sharp uh, prod and, and pokes an animal, like an ox or a horse, to get them to go through, the, through a gate or to corral them or something like that. And if the, the animal kicks back, it just jabs more into them. And it's, a, it's an immovable force. You can try to kick against it as much as you want. But, but you, you're going to eventually go the direction that the, the rancher or whoever it is, the shepherd who's prodding you, you're going to have to go in their direction. Um, uh, well, the, the implication, therefore, then is God has been pricking him, goading him for a long time. You just think about it. He's about Paul is about the same age as Jesus, roughly. Uh, grew up in a town not too far away from where Jesus grew up, but... During Jesus' active life and ministry, you have to assume that perhaps Paul had heard about it. He spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. Maybe he was there. You know, maybe he was there when Jesus was spending time in Jerusalem. Maybe Paul was there during the Passion Week. Perhaps he was there when Christ was crucified. Um, So he saw what was going on or heard about it, perhaps, But even beyond that, uh, we hear in Paul's letter to the Romans, he refers to his relatives, Andronicus and Junia. Junia. He says, who were in Christ before me? 
So he has relatives in his family who became Christians before he did, that he knew about. So he had heard this message even before. And think about his mentor, Gamaliel, the Pharisee, his uh, his mentor, uh, the school where he learned uh, classical education to become a Pharisee in Jerusalem. Even Gamaliel, this uh, this well-known Pharisee, when uh, the the apostles and disciples were brought before the high priest and the council early in Acts, Gamaliel says, "Well, hold on, just leave them alone, because if they're uh, not of God, God will sort it out." If they are of God, you might be standing in the way of God's word, uh, God's work. Uh, well, that, uh, I mean, that was unexpected. For someone like Gamaliel to do something like this, that was Paul's mentor. And do you think that Paul didn't know about that? Of course he probably heard word that Gamaliel said such a thing and probably resented it because this was Paul who was once Saul, who was the Pharisee who was persecuting the early Christians of the way. And here his mentor is doing something that was probably abhorrent to him. And there Saul, who we now know as Paul, was at the stoning of Stephen, the deacon Stephen. Paul was standing there witnessing it and approving of it. And we were told that not only was Jesus stoned, but Jesus was, I mean, not only was Stephen stoned, but Jesus was present in some epiphanic vision that Stephen had. Christ was there, probably even at work and Paul's life in that moment when he didn't know it, but still Paul goes on to persecute the Christians. And finally, he gets letters to to arrest Christians, and he's on his way to Damascus, and he is knocked down, blinded, and goes into shock so much that he can't eat for three days. And yet, Jesus is personal and tender and loving to him. Not only does he knock him off his horse, but he says to him in his own voice two times, Saul, Saul, calls him by name, an individual, someone whom he knows. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? The God who is goading, the God who goads is the God who also loves. The God who's been goading him all along is the God who loves him. If you want a a vision of kind of what I'm talking about, go see this documentary called Buck, uh, which is about this guy who's a horse uh, uh, wrangler or whatever you want to call it, this guy named Buck Brannon, who is the original horse whisperer for whom the story is written after him. But this documentary is about this guy, Buck, who's the horse whisperer, who who, uh, when so many other people want to break horses to get them... uh, to comply and fear, Buck goads them with tenderness. And it's, uh, it's to be seen. I mean, you, 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 when you watch that, you think, this is an image of God's grace. This is an image of God's mercy and grace, the way that Buck uh, goads these horses so that they eventually go in the direction that he wants. With, with, even though when, when he's originally approaching them, they, they're fearful, of course, they eventually calm down and they, go, they do exactly what he wants them uh, to do. Well, let me give you a, a sort of another, another vision of, of what I'm talking about here. My friend uh, Dave Zoll wrote this book called The Mess of Help from the Crucified Soul of Rock and Roll. And he has this one chapter about Elvis Presley. 
And, uh, you know, Elvis wasn't just a famous singer, but he made a bunch of movies. Um, and one, which is quite obscure that Dave talks about in this book, which I haven't even seen, but the way he talks about it is so brilliant. It's called Change of Habit. And there's this young girl in the story who has some sort of uh, mental illness, and Elvis is, is playing a doctor, John Carpenter, J.C. Catch it? Um, Elvis is playing John Carpenter, this doctor, and there's this young girl with some sort of mental illness who's never spoken before um, and is, is quite uh, obstinate. Uh, and uh, he uses what's called rage reduction therapy on her. What is rage reduction therapy, you ask? We watch as Elvis holds a six-year-old patient at Manda for what must be an entire afternoon. As she struggles against his touch, he tells her softly, Gonna hold you till you get rid of your hate. I love you, Amanda. I love you. He encourages her to get as mad as you can get. Get mad at me. I love you. The scene goes on about five times longer than anyone would expect until finally the girl speaks for the first time ever. Everyone in the waiting room follows the girl's mother and bursts into tears. I welled up as well. Now, obviously, the medical basis of this treatment is questionable, to put it mildly. One strongly suspects that it would have been viewed as absurd even at the time. Yet, oddly enough, its far-fetchedness doesn't invalidate its power. Quite the opposite. Dr. Carpenter breaks into this little girl's mental prison, not with coercion or force, but with love and forbearance. She resists and kicks and screams, yet it has no effect on her helper's compassionate demeanor or desire to help her. Help, his help is not contingent in any way on her cooperation. Come to find out, Dr. Carpenter's inner city vocation is directly related to someone saving his life in a similarly self-sacrificial way. See where I'm going with this? Even in less acronistic settings, grace is absurd. Well, as Dave points out, the girl, uh, although healing comes in a way, obviously it's, it's questionable, but it's a good, it's a, it's a sort of good vision of God's grace. And yet you have to imagine she isn't entirely healed. You know, I mean, the, 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 the obstinance will, will come back, at least in maybe milder forms, but it'll still be there. But she's been knocked off her horse in that moment where John Carpenter plays played by Elvis, holds her through the kicking when she's kicking against the goading of him holding her and saying, I'm going to hold you all day. I love you. Uh, so he's knocked her off her horse, but, but in love. And so, too, Paul would continue to experience like she might, like she might be healed in, in some profound way, but I bet she's going to go on and still be a little girl. And so, too, would Paul experience what he calls a thorn in his flesh, after his conversion. Later in his life, even though Paul comes to conversion, he says, I still have a, a thorn in my flesh. And it's never made clear what this is about. And that's probably uh, for good reason. The meaning is unclear, but it seems that God continues to prick and goad Paul. Even after his conversion, he says, this affliction has brought me to humility. Uh, and it's a good thing. Even when I've prayed for it to go away, God has kept it there and it's made me humble. Just consider Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, uh, I want to do certain things, but I don't do them. And there are some things that I don't want to do, yet I keep on doing them. 
thorn in my flesh, whatever it is, he's still an afflicted man. And it's done, God might be at work in those very moments and done for his own humility, and you might call it sanctification, a growing as a person. Yesterday, I was at the zoo with my children, and we went to the lion uh, the lion tamer show where they, they feed the lions and uh, they give them like meat and they squirt goat's milk for them, which apparently tastes like ice cream to them. And one of the things I noticed, they brought one lion down on the ground and through the, the iron mesh, one of them took a piece of the lion's skin and pinched it. And I was thinking, what in the world is she doing? Pinching the lion. And they explained they do that every single day. They pinch the lion so that the times when they have to give them a shot or a vaccination, they'll be used to the pinching. So that pinching that at first I thought, what is this woman doing to that line? And the line wasn't even reacting. What I thought was absurd was done out of love and compassion to prepare for these vaccinations. And no doubt God is goading you in the same way. I have no doubt that God has goaded you like that before. And he continues to do it, no matter where you are in your journey. Maybe you've never come to faith yet. Maybe you've never had the Damascus Road experience. God is probably goading you in that direction. And even if you have had that sort of blinding light in your life, know that you probably have a thorn in your flesh in the way that that Paul did. And that is God pricking you. And it's an immovable force. Just as when the uh, rancher goads the animal, and the animal kicks back and it just drives the goad further into the skin. It's an immovable force and you're going to go through that gate whether you like it or not. And he's doing it out of compassion. One last thing and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. Uh, this book by comedian Jim Gaffigan came out a few years ago, ago. It's called Dad is Fat. And it's hilarious. I recommend it. Uh, and it's also a book full of... of uh, what has to be Christian-inspired grace. Uh, he's a Roman Catholic, and as such, he has like six children, this guy, Jim Gaffigan. We wrote the book. They were living in a two-bedroom, like fifth-story walk-up apartment in Manhattan with their five children. And he's, this whole book is reflecting on him being a parent. Uh, and he says um, he's reflecting on when people think it's ridiculous that he has all these kids, and he says... I guess the the reasons against having more children always seem unsurprising and superficial. What exactly am I missing out on? Money, a few more hours of sleep, a more peaceful meal, more hair. These are nothing compared to what I get uh, from these five monsters who rule my life. I believe each of my five children has made me a better man, so I figure I only need another 34 kids to be a pretty decent guy. (laughs) I can totally relate to that. Uh, each one of them has been a pump of light into my shriveled black heart. I would trade money, sleep, or hair for a smile from one of my children in a heartbeat. Well, it depends on how much hair. Uh, I mean, the, the realization I need 34 more kids to become fully sanctified, you know? Uh, but each one of them has been a pump of light into my shriveled black heart. Heart. Well, as with me and Paul, Elvis's patient, the small girl, Amanda, uh, perhaps uh, there's a a thing in your life, uh, like with uh, Jim Gaffigan, 
uh, where God is is prodding you. Maybe it's not. Uh, maybe it's prodding you. Maybe it's not. Um, maybe it's not five children. Maybe it's something else. And and know that even when it feels like it hurts, that God is probably pumping light into your shriveled black heart. Amen.